Welcome to the Gain, Grow, Retain podcast. We got Rob Dallywall. Did I say that right? Yeah. Did I say your last name right? Okay, good. Rob Dallywall, you're with Crane Ventures now, but you've been with, I mean, your resume reads is like a who's who of logos in the tech space. IBM, Salesforce, Yammer. Some people might not remember what Yammer was, but we had it when I worked at BlackBot. It's like a social network for uh, corporations. It got bought by Microsoft, right? That's right, yeah. It's been a few years at so, Microsoft. So you work for Microsoft, so you put that one on the logo or on the on the resume. Zendesk, Slack, and now Crane Ventures, mm. where you're, what is your title at Crane Ventures? I'm a, a venture partner at, uh, at Crane. And I think just hearing you go through that list, Jay, now explains to me why I'm so exhausted all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, exactly. Where all this gray hair came from as well. <laughs> <laughs> but it's awesome. I mean, you've seen a lot of different things. And so that's um, why I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. I think our, our, the people who listen to this, yeah, I, I think the people who listen to this podcast are going to get a lot out of this conversation and they probably already know you from, you, you've been pretty active. You and I met on a, uh, on a panel discussion uh, with Rick Adams and his team. So it was probably long overdue for us to meet, but um, uh, cool. So maybe just, will you tell us a little bit about your path? Cause you start, it looks like you started out in consulting and then sort of progressed into customer success. I'm just really curious, you know, Yeah, sure, sure. Well, <clears throat> it's all been, I think it all, the common thread in all of it is has been its customer sort of focused work, uh, whether I've been on the sell side of the fence or, or, or the other side of the fence. Um, I, when I graduated, uh, I'm going to show my age now, graduate recruitment was down like 70%. It was the height of a recession in the early 90s. And so I got a job uh, as a building laborer with my neighbor who's a plasterer. And after about six months of doing that, I'm like, like this is really hard work. I, I actually could, you know, I just prefer to work indoors. That was basically my major. So it was, it was construction. It was construction, construction that you yeah, were doing. Yeah, much, yeah. Okay. Uh, and don't get me wrong. It was. It was. It was um, I'm a big home DIYer, so the skills came in very, very handy. But it's just really hard work. And then I, you know, had a strong technical bent. I um, had done a lot of Unix and stuff, so I ended up getting a job as a, a Unix administrator uh, back in the day. And in some of that DNA is also really permeated because uh, uh, I'm always. Um, doing as my wife likes to call geek boy stuff, you know, still on the on Linux and, and Unix. Um, and, and then over time, you know, the, the world moved away to a much more client server centric model and sort of netware Novell became a really big thing. So I, again, I'm showing my age here. I yes, yes. Novell and I started off as a Novell engineer and I joined um, my first sort of big company, which was then called Anderson Consulting, it's now Accenture. And uh, I came there as a freshly minted Novell engineer on my first day. They said, uh, so do you know anything about Lotus Notes? And I was like, nope, never even heard of it. Is that like a spreadsheet or something? They go, we think we're going to put you on third line note support. And like, that was my introduction to, to being on the, uh, on the collaboration software side. And that's been really the, the strain of my career. So, so, so on and so forth, both, both on the internal side and then eventually uh, on the vendor side, it's always been some form of collaboration or productivity uh, software. And just fast forwarding a bit, you know, I've been super fortunate been through uh, one acquisition, two exits. Uh, and that, it felt like a very natural progression to then be on the investing side of the fence because what I was actually really interested in doing was a couple of things. One, uh, just getting exposure to a much broader range of companies than the ones that I've been in or, or got to work with. Uh, and the other was also different technologies. So, um, you know, sort of machine learning, AI, deep tech, analytics, all this sort of technical stuff that I wouldn't get much exposure to. And then I think finally really, and I didn't realize this until I got a bit more into the investing side of things, uh, just the ability to have some influence at early stages in companies. Uh, I always sort of semi-jokingly say when you give people money, they tend to return your phone calls. Uh, but the, uh, but the, the truth is, 
um, you know, being a from the success profession, it's proved to be one of the best ways to kind of influence companies early to think uh, longer term. And I think that's the thing that I've, uh, I've discovered I really uh, enjoy about what I do now. I like that a lot, the, the idea of influencing from the customer side, because I think it's been interesting for us, for Jay and I over the last three years, we've got to see a ton of different businesses. We've seen private equity back, venture capital back, mm -hmm. and we, we've started to learn ourselves about how there are just different philosophies and strategies within VC firms and PE firms, you know, in terms of their time horizons, you know, the type of values they like to get, the types of companies they like to go after. Um, so it's been really interesting. Whether they're a finance background or an ex-operator background or, or, or whatever, yeah, it will, it will really influence how they think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, how, so I know you just mentioned that you like to, you know, it's interesting on the investing side because you get to kind of, uh, mm -hmm. it seems like pretty early on, you know, help them think about being customer centric and what that means in today's world and how that's really driving, you know, where we're going. But um, I guess, do you look for, like, do they already have qualities of that as you going into, like, do you feel like you find companies, you know, that already are thinking like that? Or are you still finding in, you know, early stage companies that they're uh, maybe less customer centric than uh, we want them to be or that we think? Yeah, so it's, it's a great question, Jeff. And I, I think it depends a great deal on how early or what stage the, the company is in, because Sometimes I deal with companies, they don't even have any customers. You know, they've barely got a product yet, right? So we're, they're looking for investment to help develop out the product. But that is actually the perfect time to engage with them about how they're going to think about building the product. Because, you know, we may not have thought in the past, or maybe even some of the listeners of the podcast today may not think that actually you can have customer success before you have a product. Because what you're trying to do uh, when you're building a, a solution is to get to what they call product market fit really quickly. How do I actually build the right thing for the right group of people so I can sell it to you. And if you have someone who is engaging with even prospective customers, pilot customers, beta customers, alpha customers, whatever it is, to learn about how, what they need and how that's being used, you can get to product market fit quicker. Now, you may not call that role CS, might be a product person wearing that hat, but what they're really doing is trying to make that customer successful, right? So um, sometimes at the later stage where people do have a little bit of traction, um, they're really doubling down on trying to figure out how do I sell this thing? How do I market and sell it? And that's normally the point where myself and some of the general partners would get involved in helping them think a bit broader. So not only do how do you market and sell, but how do you grow and retain and, uh, and actually create a uh, sustainable revenue model that varies from company to company. A lot of that has to do with uh, the founder's background. My personal experience is uh, founders who are much more technical, much more engineering, much more product. They get it because they have no preconceived idea of how go to market works. So you can educate them on the whole thing. They don't know any difference. Maybe founders who have a little bit more commercial background or they've had a company before, uh, unless they've had first-hand experience of it, they may take actually a little bit more convincing because they actually have a, a mental model of how building a company works. So it, it just varies, I think. But a lot of it's to do with the stage and the type of founder that you're dealing with. You know, people think about MQLs, SQLs at that early stage. They think about uh, sales, ACV, average deal size. Getting them to think about net revenue retention early uh, can actually be quite uh, quite an interesting challenge because it's so far away. They go, well, i got to just figure out how to sell and build this thing. But you say, well, actually, if you think about laying some foundational pieces now, then you're actually going to be much stronger and much healthier when you're looking for later funding rounds. And, uh, you know, I'm very fortunate I work in a, in a fund which philosophically believes that. Yeah. Uh, you know, and the, and the partners, I think, are very, very forward thinking. It's, well, it's fascinating to think of that way, too, because um, and I like the way you outlined that earlier, that a lot of times, you know, the companies are a little bit more customer centric than they probably think, because, you know, if you're talking to early customers and you're creating some of these feedback loops and these mechanisms to 
get feedback and act on it, um, you know, you're kind of starting the foundations of what processes can look like in the future. And that's yeah. the, that's the point I think we see maybe um, fall down a little bit is that a lot of times in customer success, it seems like they are starting from a point of where they feel like the department customer success feels like they have to go drive all of this customer yeah. engagement and that they have to go create all these processes. And I think if you actually take a step back and you look across the organization, you can say, Hey, if you take a little bit broader view to say, Hey, how can I start latching onto what sales is already doing or what products already doing, or, you know, what we're doing in customer success, because there are, I think there's already processes that exist, for example, like in product, you know, they're, they're going to talk to customers or think about, you know, um, getting product feedback and, you know, they're doing certain things. Like how can I then just take customer success and latch onto what they're doing and yeah. kind of take the pieces I need or enhance it where we need it. So I think they're sometimes if, if the leaders in customer success can kind of take that little step, half step back and mm-hmm. um, take that perspective, then it, I think it helps. But I like the idea, like you said, of, of how there's already some of these things that inherently exist inside of a business and, you know, you just need to be able to tap into them and identify, exactly. identify them. I mean, one of the things that I've always said to people who've worked for me is um, when it comes to working with customers, you don't have any authority. All you've got is influence, right? That, that's literally it, right? No, yeah. we don't have, can't make the customer do anything, but we can influence them. And I think what's often, um, the job is so challenging to do that. I think what success leaders and practitioners often forget is that they can and should be doing that internally as well. So they may not have any authority over sales or they may not have authority over product, but they have influence. So, you know, if they actually exercise that muscle and try to understand, well, what is this group trying to achieve? I think there's probably a lot more alignment with what I'm trying to achieve and they're trying to achieve. We can help each other. So if I can really drive that influence, um, you know, everyone will win. You know, the customer will win, we'll win, you know, we'll all do better. One of the, uh, say, the advantages of investing in companies now is you know you do have a teeny little bit more authority than you might have a board seat or you you know or you're just giving people money right so they like yeah. say, they tend uh, hopefully be a bit more open to listening to you now they may not do what you say but they, they will maybe listen to you yeah uh, but part of my experience has been you know most founders and founding teams they're really open to input they want to get as much input as they can right they want to try and learn it so the uh i, I think it's really interesting because we see that a ton where you know you walk into organizations and it still it still feels kind of antiquated in the way that they think about how these these departments interact with each other especially when you start getting into functions that um, inherently just almost go across the entire layer of the customer like customer marketing right like customer marketing lives sometimes in marketing department and then you have a marketing department that is really just thinking about how do i go acquire new customers and it's almost like those two things are at odds with each other and yet we need customer marketing more than ever and i think that's to your point right because we've changed the way that we have the revenue model I mean, now we've changed the way that we have to communi- communicate with a current customer. Um, and so how do, we, how do we rethink and reimagine what that looks like? Um, I think that's a, a great question that we, yeah. Jay and I, are always thinking about. And, and that goes further than the, the on-premises way of building and selling software. It actually goes back to the industrial era, because if you think about how companies are organized, especially large ones, uh, you know, you've got this org chart structure, right? And that, that comes from an era that, which was designed for actually uh, high-volume manufacturing. So what we're really trying to do is to take something that's very, very complicated, break it down into very small individual uncomplicated components and then maximize the efficiency of production of each of those components each person working on those components doesn't need to know what the other person is doing they just need to know how to do their bit right so that organizational structure is designed for efficiency predictability repeatability but we're in a knowledge economy now we don't you know we're in software because we don't build widgets well we might build software widgets but we don't build metal widgets but we're still in the same structure so I think a lot of the challenges and a lot of things that I spend a lot of time working with companies on is how can we build a company that actually reflects the way that you generate revenue? <laughs> you know, um, some of you may be familiar with Dave Jackson, who's a 
uh, another you know, really great CS practitioner, he has a phrase which says, common practice is not always the best practice. You know, and I love that because it's very easy in the absence of not knowing anything different to just stick with common practice. It's not always the right thing. It's funny because I, I love the way you put that, Rob. I've never heard anybody describe it that way, but we see it almost every week when we talk to companies, they treat it like it's an assembly line, like it's a Model T that we're building. And to your point, there's so many more variables. There's relationship, there's actual value. You've got to figure out the value is different for every customer. Like so, so many different variables. Exactly. My, now, I think there is a place for that model when you become a public company your priorities, for example, are much more about predictability, repeatability, right? And, that, and there's no surprise, I'm sure you guys have seen it, that often when a startup becomes very successful and goes public, there's a mass exodus of people because they're like, I don't want to work in that structure. What I prefer is the ad hoc, cross-functional, quick to pivot kind of structure. And then you see those in, in those companies that are organized around that and a very high scale predictability, it actually reduces their ability to innovate. So what do they do? They may have more cash, so they acquire the innovation. They buy the smaller companies. Right? Yeah. They add the So I think, I don't profess to have an answer to this, but what I am trying to do in the position I'm in now is to, at that, certainly that early stage, is to help influence people to at least start thinking about, uh, you know, this thing a bit more holistically and maybe organizing or even measuring people uh, differently. And, you know, and that touches on some of the things in the article, which, which uh, you guys, you know, wanted to talk about. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It, I, uh, just one more point on that. I would argue that it doesn't have to be that way, even when you get to scale. I mean, look, and, and for me, it comes down to leadership focusing on customers, right? So look at Amazon, for example. Yeah. They have great, you know, I, I don't claim to know the inside culture of Amazon. You can read lots of stuff about how toxic it is or how great it is, depending on your point of view and perspective, right? You can find whatever you want to support that. But the one thing that's evident from everything that Amazon does is that they're driving prices lower for their customers and driving ease of use and simplicity for their customers as a first principle of everything that they do. So, right. I mean, and they're one of the largest companies on the planet at this point. So I think it can be done, but it. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I think one of my favorite phrases is from Ray Kroc, who was the founder of McDonald's and he was like, if you take care of the customer, the business will take care of itself. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. And I think it sounds simplistic, but it's true. Absolutely. Yeah. That's certainly the, 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 the mindset that Jeff and I come at things from. So, um, all right. So in, in this article that you published on Medium a couple of weeks back, did get a lot of traction. It was really, really good. There are three key points that, that, you, that you made. And, and really the, the title of the article is there's no such thing as post-sale. Okay, so we call it post-initial sale. I think you'd call it post-first sale, right? But there are multiple sales to be made always. But the buyer is often not the deployer. You got to have alignment between sales and, and CS and really the organization. And then it's not a customer success isn't a department. It's an operating model. So yeah, give us your, yeah, give us your perspective. Like st start with buyer versus deployer because I like the way you, you describe that. Yeah, I think this is something that really occurred to me when I've worked on sort of different companies that are on different stages of the journey. You had different segments of customers and, uh, and I see it now, certainly as an investor, whereby, you know, you can get huge traction in a small to medium business. And then you think, all right, okay, so the products are great. So let's just start selling to large enterprises. And then all these problems that you didn't think about occur. Sometimes they're product scaling problems. There's a lot of times they're deployment problems. And it got me thinking about why is that the case? Why does this work really well for a 500 person company? If we get to a 10,000 person company, it starts to become so much harder. Uh, and, you know, over the sort of being exposed to these kinds of problems, you kind of actually realize actually that the people who are using and actually physically deploying the software or configuring it, because you may not need to deploy it, the bigger the company, the further they tend to be away from the people who bought it, right? 
And so whether they are away, you, it's like a whole constituent of people you should have been selling to that you never actually even talked to until the check is signed. And that creates you know, huge friction for both the customer and for you because uh, now part of the challenge is that if we go back to what we were talking about before, organizations are structured in very sort of rigid sort of siloed ways. Well, if my uh, in, in incentive is to only think in 12-week increments and to only think about hitting a number in that 12-week increment, I will not quite rightly want to introduce anything that might slow the efficiency of that process down. Right? And you're talking about the sales process now, right? Just to be clear. And I completely understand that, right? It's like, I've got this 12-week window. I live and die by this 12-week window. Yep. I'm as good as my last quarter. And I can't risk, no matter whether it's good out here, I can't risk anything potentially slowing that down. So that leads on to the second point, was if you change the incentive structure even slightly, to say, I want just part of your thinking to be, be beyond the 12 weeks, you might start shifting sort of some of the longer term value, right? Similarly, from a CS practitioner's point of view, and I know this might be a bit controversial, is, is always just talk about outcomes. We've got to get really out. And I agree, you've got to actually, not just do activity, you'll have an outcome. But if you want to influence people internally, that outcome has to be revenue. So that's the conversation you have to have internally with a customer. So what's your business outcome? What's your goal? What do you want to do faster, quicker, cheaper, easier? What employees do you want to make happier? Inside, you have to say, you have to draw the line between doing that and driving revenue internally. And I think that's the... That was kind of the, the, the thrust of actually a future article that I'm going to write is that I think some of the influencing and changing in, in mindset that needs to happen both in and outside of the CS profession. But, but fundamentally, what I was trying to get across in the article is that the companies that I work with or work with closely that, we do, that are doing this really well, they all have those three things in, in, in place. And the first one is they understand there's a big gap sometimes between the buyer, the person we sold to, and the people who are ultimately going to have to make this successful. And if you can account for that through how you sell, so just small changes in the sales motion. In some cases, it's a slide. You just give them a slide going, you need to have these things in place. Um, if you can account for that, and then if you can account for that and how people are incentivized, you are in a much stronger position. Uh, it doesn't solve the problem because ultimately it's a human behavioral problem, but it can go some way limiting some of the problems uh, if you start to think about it slightly. Yep, totally. And, and so my question for you on this is how you see a bunch of different companies, right? Every, every week and some of them more mature than others. Um, but how often are you seeing sales teams now beginning to put those types of incentive structures in place, which might like, as you alluded to in the article, no. like, yes, you get credit for booking the deal, but you get full credit when they've been deployed, right? Or, configured, rolled out live. Yeah. How often do you see that happening? That question is not enough. <laughs> yeah. I would say we, we, we have seen it, right. But probably once out of every 20, 30, 40 companies that, that we come across. That's about right. And I would probably hazard a guess that a lot of those companies are in what I like to call the acceleration phase, whereby, you know, they figured out a basic motion and now they've put the foot on the gas, right. And the, the organization's getting bigger. Uh, and that's often, that's often where you will see it, where it's actually, but it's normally, in my experience, a response to um, things having not gone well for a period whereby, you know, normally it's a very material churn has come up and there's been quite a bit of finger pointing internally and everyone went actually go, well, now we start pointing fingers at each other and it's solved the problem. We need to sort of massage the incentive structure a bit. Yeah, yeah. So it's reactive. Once, once we see we, we had an issue, Correct. it's like, oh, okay, now I know it's yeah. causing it. But, but to your point, it's like the impedance mismatch between the incentives of both of these organizations and, and gets back to like the, 
the assembly line mindset, right? You've got a certain set of goals and they're at odds with somebody else's in the same organization, touching the same customers. But I think there's two things. And I, I, I don't want to, I, I, like I, as I mentioned at the start of that question, salespeople are doing exactly what they should be doing, what, exactly what they've been asked to do. 12 weeks. Oh, totally. Yeah. And they're optimized for it. And I actually think on the success practitioner side, I still think there is too much psychological resistance that being thought of as being a salesperson. Agree. That, is, that is something of the impedance, right? Sales is a hard, noble profession. There's nothing wrong with it. We've all had a lot of experiences, bad ones, with salespeople, right? But if you approach it the right way, a really good seller is what they're trying to do. And this is something Mark Reverge, who is the former CRO of HubSpot, was very fond of saying. Sales is not about driving revenue, it's about driving value. Revenue is the outcome, right? So if you can get a CS person to think that way and a salesperson to think that way, uh, then I think you're in a, you know, it, right? So I think I love it. I think you know, I, I think it, I think there's as much onus on the CS profession and CS practitioners and leaders that actually go. The reason I am here is not so the customer likes me or that we, you know, they like to take my phone calls or that we have a great relationship. That's all a proxy for driving more revenue. And the way we're going to drive more revenue is not do the hard sell, not do crazy stuff like selling stuff they don't need. It's to uncover where we can be adding more value. So you're the leader, you're pulling yep. the value, right? Yeah, I think it depends on the sales side, but also very much so on the success side. Otherwise, I think we will continue to go round and round in this. You'll go to any success meetup, and it's going to devolve into some challenge about working with sales. Sorry, Jason. Yeah, well, no, the 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 I I completely agree with that, and I actually tell people all the time that Mark Roberts' book, The Sales Acceleration Formula, is one of the best customer success books oh, sure. that's yeah. ever hit the market. Right, because it, it talks, it's all about value in, in a, a, up front. And so we've been in some of those discussions where they've devolved into like a bitch session about yeah. customers, about sales, right? But that it misses the entire point. Like if, if we're not selling, then we have, we're not doing our job as a company, right? There's two sides of the coin. I actually think there's a ton of value in some organizations somewhere that will offer training and education to success practitioners on how to work with salespeople, right? Like just how to identify what's important to them, uh, you know, what motivates them, the different types, because there are different types of sales people and you have to adjust yeah. the same way to customers, right? You have to then uh, have to adjust. I have learned this the hard way by failing at it multiple times, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I worked in companies where, you know, I was the first, second, third person, so I had to close deals too, right? So I've actually walked a mile in their shoes and realized, well, man, this is a really hard job and it's kind of soul destroying and yet it's really pressurized. So. I feel kind of fortunate I've had that first-hand experience, but not everybody has. So I think there's definitely an opportunity for sort of more education. Yeah, I think the interesting part, so I, I, I've got a little, little bit of account management in my background. And the, the thing that I always try to do in the mindset that I would take is I actually didn't work for my company. I worked for the customer's company, right? And if, you, if we can help get that mindset, um, I think a little bit into customer success and not necessarily to think about the, the process and the metrics that I need to do and just check the box, right? If you actually can kind of um, implant yourself in your customer's business, understand how they make money, understand how their organization works, kind of understand the, the layers beneath just the surface. Um, then to your point, I think you become a much better, uh, you become a much better seller um, just as a bystander because you're not doing the hard sell. You're actually in there learning their business. You're alongside of them doing it. And you're uh, just, you know, asking the right questions and kind of uncovering little bumps that you see along the road to say, Hey, you know, does that make sense for us to, to do, or does this make sense for us to do? Um, and I think it becomes a lot more subtle, but I think that little shift of trying to help customer success managers 
understand how their how their customers make money and understand how their customers operate, um, I think is something that we've been trying to get a lot of our clients to think about because otherwise your your CSM is just at the surface level saying, okay, I'm just gonna you know I'm gonna check the box for our QBR, I'm just gonna check the box for our 60 day check in, and and it's not they're not really getting the information to make them better. It's a mechanical process which then compounds because you're not adding particularly high value to the customer, but internally people do not understand what what value if any that you are adding to the to the company's bottom line. And a lot of this, I think, has to do with the difference between leading and lagging indicators, right? Sales has a leading number, success typically has a lagging one. So, you know, how do you square that circle to make sure everybody realizes actually this is a continual sales motion? You know, that's the thing. It's not sell and move on, it's sell and the next sell, right? So, and that, I think that was, that, that, that sort of thinking is what, you know, I'm in a slightly more fortunate position, I get access to a lot more early stage founders. You can try to inculcate that thinking a little bit. Um, but it's harder, you know, in a larger company. But, you know, for anyone who's listening to this, you're not as powerless as you think you are. You know, you just making the effort to go in and understand what does the product team do? What does the sales team do? Learn, 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 observe. Figure out how you can help them draw a line between what they do and what you do. Uh, who's not going to turn down that help, right? Like, seriously, like, who's not going to turn it down? So, um, I, I think it's understandable, especially in a high volume or a fast moving business for a CS leader to think, I've just got to deal with the lot that I've been given, right? Yeah. Like, you, know, you know, I know it's broken yeah. or right-handed, but I've just got to try and find the best way to deal with it. And I can appreciate that I've been in that situation, but I think real, real value starts to occur when you actually take that understanding of what's not working and actually try to influence the change internally as much as you do with the customer. You might not be successful at it, but you, you've got to at least try it. Um, whether you're the first CSM or, or the product, leader before there are any customers or the director of customer success when you have your first hundred customers or the VP of customer success or the chief customer officer. I think what I, what I encourage anybody who's leading with customers to be like, to just be and think and act like you are the chief customer officer, no matter what, Yeah. because then you can, you can take control. It's it, but when you have a victim mentality about it, I think mm -hmm. then you, there's no way to lead, right? There's no way to, you're not going to make any progress that way. We see it. We see it happen. No, of your book of business, right? Yep. Yep. No, no matter what, what the size of it is. So, um, sorry, Jeff. Did you? No, I was gonna, did, yeah, I was going to mention that I think another part of that article too is just about how success isn't just a department, you know, and, and we've talked a little bit about that, right? It's kind of more of the operating model and the philosophy of the, of the company. Yeah. Um, and the, the cliche is, you know, always that the it needs to be driven from the top. It needs to be kind of a, you know, the CEO type mindset, the C level has to, you know, each of the, the members of, the, of that C-suite need to be thinking in that way. But um, is there a way around that? Like, is there a, you know, I guess have you seen customer or companies be successful without, without that buying from the top? I know it's the, the cliche, but I think we've always, you know, figured, we've always figured that it's, even though it's the cliche, nine, nine times out of 10, it's, it's typically right, where if it's not really driven from the CEO, then you can't really infect yeah. much change. Well, the, the, the irony of this is, Jeff, is that the more successful a company is, the harder it is to get anybody to think differently, right? So, you, you know, if you look at um, Microsoft is doing tremendously under Satya Nadella's leadership, and I would say the most amazing thing he's been able to do is fundamentally change the culture of the company, uh, you know, from and actually sacrifice short-term revenue for long-term revenue, right? Yes. You know, box software to Office 365. That's two years of pain for 20 years of 85% margin right? That takes a lot of leadership to do. So I think the, the, the thing is, is really how well is the company doing? If things are going badly and you're falling in a hole because you're losing, you're losing customers, 
people are going to listen to you. But things are going well. That can mask a whole bunch of problems that are not going to happen today. They're going to happen next year. <laughs> right? So that's the challenge. And I think, again, you know, I don't profess to have an easy answer for that, but I think one of the things CS organizations can do is to start presenting the numbers or presenting it in a way that resonates with the decision makers, with the chief executive, with the board. I often like to think, what's the QBI you're doing internally? Right? You know, if your QBR is like, well, we've had this many customer meetings, this many EBRs, this many QBRs, is that good? I don't know. Right? If you can say to a, uh, I work in a company, this is very interesting. I went to the uh, management offsite in the US and my opposite numbers said, right, we did 65 executive reviews, we did 128 QBRs, you had a much bigger business than me. And then I went up, presented after him, and I said, I haven't got any of those. Because you mean, we didn't do any of those this quarter. And there's this like gasp in the room. But we did 97% logo retention and 125% net revenue retention, and our NPS is 85. Right? So whatever we're doing, right, it seems to be moving in the right direction. And I think it's because you, you know, by the way, he had great numbers too, but he didn't correlate that activity to his numbers outcome, right? And I think that's the important thing that I would kind of ask CS leaders and professionals to do is start couching what you should do, not in activity terms or even outcome for the customer terms, unless the outcome's a case study or massive increasing usage or license revenue. Start couching it internally in the, in the terms that are important to the company. What's the headline things the company cares about at the stage the company is in? At the early stages, it might be NPS because you're trying to drive awareness in the market. At a later stage, it's going to be net new revenue. At a later stage, it's hopefully going to be net revenue retention. How can you make sure you can draw a line between what you're doing and present it back internally so it's meaningful, right? And I think that's, the, that's where I think um, a very practically people in the CS profession can do that. Think about what you would do as a CSM making a case to get more, more pay rise to your boss, right? You would do that, right? You would put together your book of business. You would put together a business case. This is what I've done. This is what I've engaged with. This is the outcome in business terms that I have driven. Uh, I used to sit in a lot of um, uh, promotion uh, um, forums, you know, where you would present, you know, who you wanted to promote and why. And you could always tell the people who are going to get promoted because their boss is like, they've driven this much of revenue, their CSAT's this, here's some... Here's some comments from customers. Here's what salespeople are saying about working with them. And the people who wouldn't, they were typically presented with some very generic sports metaphor, like they really knocked it out of the park or they really hit a home run, you know, whatever. And I was like, yeah, no sports metaphors, right? Stick to the data. That's the, that, you know, and that works internally as well. Yeah, there's this whole layer where you have to be able to, to tell the story, right? You have to be able to correlate the, the data and, uh, and also translate that into business terms and make sure that people understand like, how, we actually, how we actually do that. But telling, this, telling that story is actually a really interesting <laughs> angle that I don't think we, um, we see very often is that people underestimate how the story can, can help and why the story matters yeah. um, and how you can yeah, actually, that's, that's to your point, awesome. how, you can influence, how you can influence that. Um, yeah, it's so good. What's, what's one thing as you've, you know, gone through your career and as you're in the position you are right now, um, you know, I know we mentioned in a lot of things that we're talking about kind of net revenue retention. We're trying to, to think about, you know, the, the long-term business outcomes. Um, how, do, how have you seen teams or how do you kind of coach teams maybe to think about the leading indicators um, that can align to those um, as you, you know, look at, look at the, the teams that you're engaging with? So how do we get them to think about leading indicators? I think a lot of it comes down to that alignment piece I wrote about in the article, which is, you know, how I often judge the success of a, 
or the likely success of the CS team or even a proto CS team with how closely are you aligned to pipeline and the key deals? You know, because it, and by alignment, it doesn't mean you help close it, although if you can, that's great. But it's much more, you know, did you get involved? When did you get involved? Did you get a handover of the relationship to the key decision maker? Were you able to start engaging with or at least presenting what the deployers need to do? So I think that is a, a key thing that I try to inculcate into people is, if you are going to think about your role as a purely post-sales role, then you're going to behave in a way that reinforces that side. Up. So, you know, yeah. as a continuous sales motion. And, the, and on the flip side of that, when I talk to founders, when they go, well, yeah, well, we sold it, so we just give it to people and then magic happens, right? And I'm like, well, tell me something. It took a salesperson and a technical salesperson to sell the deal, yet somehow it will take a non-salesperson and a non-technical person to sell their next one. That doesn't make any sense to me, right? And then they actually stop and they think, they actually think, oh, I yeah. yes, I need to think about once we sold, who owns that commercial relationship, because that is a different set of skills, who owns the product and deployment relationship that's a different set of skills. Yeah, so on both sides of the fence, it's about getting people to think about, I'm in a continual sales motion. That, that, and if you can get people to think and organize and incent that way, you, you should hopefully be in a stronger position. Uh, well, we always like to end these episodes with, you know, thinking about our audience, kind of CS leaders, um, and try and give them kind of one action that they could take from this um, today to go to go do in their companies to go start to kind of infect change to to do anything. So what what do you think your maybe one action for CS leaders is to do as they take away from this podcast and the article you wrote? I would well, that's a really good question and it's a really tough one. Uh, I would actually say, and this is something I would suggest people do because they should be able to just do it, is go right now and build a slide to present at the next board meeting. That's what I would say. I like it. Yeah. yeah. And it's then socialize whatever and see if it's compelling. Yeah. Very action oriented. I like that, right? Like, hey, just go build a one one fly that goes in the, the board deck and make sure um, make sure it gets in there. Or at least you're you're presenting it to your your peers or your boss to make sure like you can at least start to understand the message that you need to tell. Um, so I like that. It's a good one. because um, I think that is a that is probably a useful practical way. It's totally in your control. Now, if the answer is you're looking at a blank slide and go, I don't know what to put in here, that's a problem. So you've identified a problem. Or if it's yep. that's another problem. And the problem may well just be you don't know access to the data or that's going to show you the outcome. So you can go and try and fix that problem, right? So you know, it just yep. opens your mind on like what, what is the right way internally. Now, all of this is uh, all predicated on the fact that you're working and dealing with people who are open to thinking in different ways. That's a whole other thing, uh, which, you know, probably another very long conversation with you guys and probably a very, very long article on sort of psychology and behavior. But, you know, you can have the best processes, the systems, the best data, but fundamentally, and going back to your earlier point, Jay, if it's not something that philosophically people at the top are interested in, they're not going to drive the behavior further down. And I, and I think that's a, a whole other topic. But I think there's, there's a lot, I, what, what I really, my goal was in trying to write that article was to try and get success practitioners to think about the things that are within their control that they could actually start to influence. Yeah, that's great. Well, I love that action. Go build, go build a, a slide that can go into the next board deck and hopefully you can go start to drive some cross-functional conversations too. If you present it to your sales leader, your marketing leader, things like that. And then I think that at least the key takeaway for me too, is just the, the whole idea of, you know, they're, that they're in one long buying cycle, right. Or one long, sales cycle and that there's always going to be this continuous motion of sales. And so we need to be thinking um, in those terms as we start looking at the customer journey and how this is going to be on a continuum for uh, the next, you know, 
one, two, three, t- 10 years, whatever they ends up being. But um, as long as we're in that cycle, we need to, we need to acknowledge it. We need to be building our teams and uh, thinking about how we're kind of rallying around that. Um, so I appreciate that uh, insight for me as well. I wrote that down. I would be very remiss if I didn't um, uh, give credit for the title of the article to Dan Stone from Gainsight. There's no such thing as post sales. He, he pinged and he said, that's the only clever thing I've ever said. And I said, no, I think you said more clever things than that. But uh, I want to give a shout out to Dan because that title, I think it, it really encapsulates what we've been talking about. Awesome. That's perfect. Well, Rob, we really appreciate the time today. This has been fun, um, and we're going to look forward to doing this again. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to the Gain, Grow, Retain podcast. If you liked what you heard, please take a moment and share the podcast with your friends and colleagues and subscribe. We really appreciate it. Talk to you soon.